Good evening. It is good to see each of you. If you're a guest, again, we welcome you. It does encourage us that you're here. If you want to be turning your Bibles to Ephesians, the sixth chapter, we will look briefly at a passage out of Proverbs as we did this morning, but we will spend uh, much of our time, at least the first part of this sermon there. Uh, we want to uh, remind our second graders that you're uh, Christmas party will follow this evening service in the upstairs fellowship room. And so it's just a reminder of that and look forward uh, to you having that time to get together. With that in mind, I think about over the last several days, I have seen several of you, uh, I guess it's mostly classes getting together and you just hear a lot of laughter and you see a lot of joy. And I, I want to just uh, remind you, I hope you pray to God in sincere thankfulness uh, for the unity that we enjoy, uh, the peace that we enjoy in God and with each other as we serve God together. Let's never take that for granted and let's always realize that the greatest blessing that we have is being adopted into God's family. And as, as sons and daughters of our Father, none of us are perfect. Uh, let's keep our eyes on the Lord and let's serve Him faithfully. And let's encourage each other and let's be patient with each other and let's help each other grow and let's spend an eternity together with him. And uh, just a reminder, I'm, I'm sure you do, but, but just appreciate the family that you have that's sitting right among you. On the lighter side, we've been thinking about work today and I found some puns about work. My first job was working in an orange juice factory, but I got canned because I couldn't concentrate. So I went to the woods as a lumberjack, but I just couldn't hack it, so they gave me the ax. After that, I tried to be a tailor, but I just wasn't suited for it, mainly because it was a so-so job. Next, I tried to work in a muffler factory, but that was exhausting. I became a professional fisherman, but I discovered I couldn't live on my net income. So I got a job at a zoo feeding giraffes, but I was fired because I wasn't up to it. Then I decided I'd be an historian, but I realized there was no future in that. My last job was working at Starbucks and I had to quit because I didn't feel right charging people that, no, no, because, <laughs> because it was the same old grind. You know, there is a lot of jokes made about the workplace. There's a lot of sarcastic remarks made about the workplace. There's a lot of complaints made about the workplace. When you stop and think about it, a major portion, and let me take back that word major, a big chunk of your waking hours, if you work a full-time job, is at the workplace. There have been times in recent decades, that preachers and teachers would regularly speak about the secular life and the spiritual life. And that was a mistake. Because that gives the idea that, hey, you can go to the workplace and in the workplace you're in a secular environment and you live that life and then you come out and you're among church friends or you gather in the assembly and that's your spiritual life. Do you realize that the Lord would not ever instruct or favor the idea of putting our spiritual life on hold because we've gone to work. Instead, 
He expects us to go to work and display our spiritual life. And so as we think about God's plans, you know, we, we mentioned this morning, if you're building even something as simple as uh, origami, and really, I don't really know how simple that is. It, I guess it's pretty difficult. There are plans for that. And if you're going to build a great life, there are plans for that too. And God is the only one that is the master of those plans. He's the one that you and I, when we decided to become Christians, in essence, we signed up, if you will. We committed our life to say, Lord, I want you to be the Lord of every aspect of my life. When I go to work, I want you to be the Lord of my life there. We began this morning by talking about Proverbs 19, 20, and 21. I just want to remind us of that. Listen to the counsel and receive instruction that you may be wise in the latter days. If we're ever going to grow wiser, we have to pull from a source of wisdom greater than our own, or we won't ever grow wiser. And so here, here's the dilemma, and, and we can choose the dilemma, or we can choose to be blessed according to 21. There are many plans in a man's heart Nevertheless, the Lord's counsel, that will stand. And so as you think about the workplace, what's going to be your plan? We talked about this morning that, that there are major areas of our life and God has created these and God has given instruction on these, whether it's the home, the church, the workplace, or even government. Those are all designed by God. God intends to lead his children toward a life that would be a marvelous life in that endeavor. If we follow God in all of those areas, we will enjoy things that we would never otherwise enjoy. Now, at first it might seem like, really? God really wants me to do this? Yes, it will pay off. Stay with God in all of these areas of life. This next slide is just a quick review. This morning, we learned that we, from the beginning, mankind, we are designed to work. We live a better life when we are productive. I really emphasized this in first service and realized I failed to emphasize it in second service. So let me put in a, you know, a, a qualifier here. The idea of retiring is a very beautiful and positive thing. Someone's worked hard enough for a long enough period of time that they now have uh, enough financial gain that they can retire. Here's when it becomes negative. When a person literally says, I want to retire and do nothing. I want to retire and watch the grass grow. You can't be a healthy person doing that. We are designed to be productive. And so if we are able to retire one day, our approach should be now with this time, that's a resource that God gives. With this additional time, what good could I do in my days that I have now that I'm not spending as much time in this place I was spending time, now I have another area. We are not designed to be non-productive and godly. When we become non-productive, we mentioned this this morning, we become busybodies. God, his word mentioned it this morning. We become busybodies. We get off track. We're designed to work. And then what do we do with the income of our work? The first thing we do is give the first fruits to God. The second thing that we are to do is provide for our family. That would include providing our very own meals and then also to work enough that we have something to give to those who are needy. I mentioned to you this morning, and I'll just make a, a quick reminder. There is nothing wrong with you and I at times in our life finding ourselves being the one in need. If you think you're too good for that, you're arrogant. 
any one of us at any given time can have the unexpected things to happen in life where we find ourselves in the position of, you know what? I really need the help of my brothers and sisters right now. And that's a beautiful thing in the sense that that's the way God's designed it. But to live our life intentionally saying, I am going to just be a sponge to all of the people around me that are willing to work and give. That intentional, that's my plan in life, is a horrible thing. That would never be God's plan for his children to intentionally live that way. So let's move now to Ephesians, the sixth chapter. In Ephesians, the sixth chapter, I mentioned to you this morning that this morning we were going to look at the ways God would have us use our resources that are provided through work. But then this is the uh, passage, one of the passages in scripture that helps us to see that there is a display of our faith that God expects us to carry right into our workplace. Again, I think I mentioned this at one of the services this morning, but not at the other. So let me just quickly mention this again. I really believe that if all of us followed what God said about ourselves as employees, think about it. You know, we have a total attendance of about 1,100. I know some of you retired. Some of you maybe work part-time jobs. But we have several, several hundred that are in the workplace just from this congregation. What ought to be the reputation is, I don't know what it is about those people up there at the Mount Julia Church of Christ, but I can tell you this. I've owned this business for 20 years and all I know is every time I hire one of those people that worship up there, they are the best employees I've ever had. They are honest. They show up on time. They do what they are asked. They are respectful of, of everyone that we do business with and everyone that they work around. Those are the best people I've ever seen. Now, we know the answer when we say, I don't know what makes them that way. It's because we surrendered our life. We've held up the white flag and we said, Lord, my life's no longer about me. My life is all about you. How do you want me to live? And the Lord would say, oh, you, you want me to tell you how I want you to live? I'll even tell you how I want you to live tomorrow at work. And so this is a passage where many, many in the first century were bondservants. And many others were masters. And a bond servant was the idea that someone was under a bond to work for that person for a period of time until a debt was paid off. And it wasn't uncommon for a, a man to owe money to someone and his sons would go to work for two years. And they were bond servants to that man until the debt was paid off. A man or a woman, for however reason, created a debt. And they would be a bond servant for however many months or for however many years until that obligation was fulfilled. And so here we have the language that even though he is speaking here to bond servants, the application is perfect to think about employee and then at the very end of this passage, employer relationships. Let's read this together. Ephesians, the sixth chapter. Let's begin reading verse five. Bond servants, be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh. Notice they're not your masters eternally, but on this earth, they have authority over you. Do it with fear and trembling in sincerity of heart as to Christ. Notice that, as to Christ. In other words, you work for them as if they were Christ. 
not with eye service as men pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, because that's ultimately what we are. We are the Lord's bond servant. But notice this next part, doing the will of God from the heart with goodwill doing service as to the Lord and not to men knowing that whatever good anyone does, he will receive the same from the Lord, whether he is a slave or free. And then the last verse, he speaks to masters and he says, you masters do the same things to them. So instead of going through several sentences, he kind of throws it in a phrase here and says, hey, all of that that I've been speaking about that you would be sincere toward each other and that you would treat others as if they were Jesus Christ. He says, Masters, you do the same things to them. And then he gives some details. Giving up threatenings, knowing that your own master also is in heaven and there is no partiality with him. Let's run over a few items here and just kind of make a, a bullet type list of things that we've just read. The first thing is very obvious. If God expects us to go to work and obey those that have the authority over us in the workplace. It never should be the Christian that's causing the discord, that's causing the problems in the chain of command. Second notice, he says, treat them with sincerity. He even mentioned with like a reverence, with a trembling or respect. In other words, but then after he talks about that, that trembling, he says with sincerity. In other words, it's not a fake, it's a put on. But now pause there for just a moment. Sometimes we work for people that are unfair. Sometimes we work for people that are ungodly. Sometimes we work for people that are not really qualified to do the job they're doing. And so someone says, well, it's really hard to treat them with sincerity. But keep in mind, we're not treating them with sincerity because of who they are. We're treating them with sincerity because of who our God is. This is all about who our God is. And so we have a genuine respect for others for no other reason. God has taught me to do that. Now, notice that he says, uh, he says it in verse five and he says it in verse seven both, that we work as if we work for Christ. How would that change things? Well, one thing is that uh, if we're working for Christ, that's kind of like the boss is standing beside us all the time, right? He's all knowing. And that's why the very next line, the very next line there in verse five is that is speaking about the fact that we're not working as, with eye service or men pleasers. In other words, hey, the boss is here today. We're going to have to really stay on top of it today. Hey, but next week he goes out of town and we can just kind of do what we want. Christian doesn't have that luxury. It's not really a luxury. That's the deceit of Satan. But a Christian doesn't have that option because a Christian knows that the one that he works for goes to work with him every day. And so... The work we do is not based upon, is the boss present or not? Is he looking or not? It's based upon, we carry out this level of excellence because our Lord is present and he's the one for whom we work. But notice also, the next slide we see that the approach of all this that's being taught is the will of God. 
I love that phrase there in verse six. How many times you've been trying to make a decision and you kind of wrestle with what's the right thing to do and you sincerely say, if I just knew what the will of God was on this, I'd do it. Well, I hope you do say that. I hope you believe that. If there's areas of kind of gray areas and you say, I just wish I knew exactly what God wanted me to do. That's a good attitude to have. If I can just figure out exactly what God wants me to do, I'll do it. Okay, what about this? He tells us exactly how he wants us to conduct ourselves at work and then even throws out and says, by the way, this is the will of God. It's pretty simple to understand, isn't it? If we want to do the will of God, this is the way we conduct ourselves uh, in the workplace. And then he points out also in verse eight, the reference that, that there's a lot more than a paycheck at hand. That the ones that are willing to go out and do good, remember, ultimately, we're working for the Lord. The Lord will reward us with good. Now, the opposite is implied in that also. Those that want to go out and, and carry out their work in a secular way. So we can go to work and we can treat it as a spiritual work. Or we could go to work and treat it as a secular work. A lot of us would probably look at our jobs of, of uh, being on staff at a church full time. And it'd be easy for some people to say they have a spiritual job and many of the rest of us have secular jobs. Well, we know what we may mean when we say that. But if we're really children of God, it doesn't really matter where our employment is. We're supposed to go in every day and do a spiritual job. Our work is about presenting ourselves in a spiritual light. Our faith is on display and the Lord will reward that. Is it comforting to you? Is it, is it? sure, I understand that. I'm, I'm doing that to know that how we work at our workplace will be a part of judgment day. Is that, well, sure, I read the scriptures. I knew that was happening. Or is that kind of a wake up call? Wait a minute. You mean... You mean the Lord is going to reward or he's going to punish based on, that seems to be exactly what this passage is teaching here. Now, this next slide, we just make a few bullet thoughts that he referenced here in verse nine. And the idea was at first, as we already mentioned, we was reading through it. It's the same concept. He speaks to the bosses and, and, and he says, I want to talk to you in the same way. By that, we can surely deduce that he already talked about a level of sincerity, a level of respect. He also talked about seeing others as if they were Jesus Christ. And so it's with that setting, that foundation already laid that he says, now masters, I want you to do the same thing. So if, if you're a supervisor, um, and I know if you're a supervisor, you're also an employee, but so you have a double application to this text. But some of you own your own business and you have people working for you. This is the application here to say, okay, what kind of employer are you? And notice he says, don't threaten. In other words, there is a level of respect that God expects, whether it's a CEO, it's a manage management position, God expects his children to have toward others in the way they communicate and the way they conduct themselves. I had a guy tell me one time, he said, you know, if, if I talked nice to the guys that worked under me, they would never do anything. That's just the way we do business. 
you can't be a Christian and that be your excuse for doing wrong. You can't do it. And if you can't change that about your work environment, it's time for you to change jobs. There's people all the time that change jobs. Right now, most of you would be gone in two weeks' notice if you got a 50% increase. Now, if you would leave for a 50% increase of money, why wouldn't you leave for your soul's sake? Wouldn't it be much wiser to leave a place that you cannot be a faithful Christian working there versus saying, oh, well, that's just the way we are at our job. That's, we cannot go to the workplace and put our faith on hold. And so here, if the idea is, well, that's just the way we do business. We threaten people. We, we talk down to people. Not a Christian that is a Christian supervisor. Not an owner that is, the, is a Christian that is the owner of a business. And then he clearly states there in verse 9 that, that what he's trying to say to all in that position is, if you're a Christian, you have a master overseeing you. So you, you can't pull the thing that says, I don't know how someone in authority should act. And in, in essence, the Lord's saying, look at the way I treat you. I'm your master. Look at, look at how good I was to people. I didn't forfeit my authority. As a matter of fact, I served them and still didn't forfeit my authority. I washed their feet and still didn't forfeit my authority. Don't threaten them. Look at my example of being an overseer. And then ultimately, uh, in this one verse, I mean, ultimately summing up this verse, he says, learn from your master. Your master is not partial. Let's give the illustration that you're in middle management. So you have people over you and you may be over people. How do you treat these people and how do you treat these people? And if you treat these with greater respect than you treat these, you're partial. And that's what the Lord is getting at. The Lord says, consider my leadership as a master of you. I'm not, in, I'm not partial toward any person. Wouldn't it be amazing to watch Jesus walk on this earth? See him stand before kings and among the wealthiest and the most earthly successful. And then watch him go over to a leper or to a beggar or to a woman who is being accused of adultery. Or to the well where a Samaritan woman was by herself in the middle of the day. And if you and I could be a fly on the wall, one of the things that we would not have to see his interaction with people many times before, it would be alarming how obvious it would be. He was so good and so kind and so respectful of all people. And if you talk down to the people under you at work and you talk up with respect to the people that have authority over you at work, you're practicing partiality. 
And that's where the Lord says, now you're not seeing my example of being a master. Let's take just a moment and let's read one more passage. And I, I, I promise you, we're not going to develop it as much as we did this one. Turn, if you will, to Romans, the 13th chapter. We've looked this morning and tonight at the topic of the workplace. I want to just remind you that you can do this very same type of study with government. And we're not going to develop it as much, but, but I just want to make sure that we all leave here aware that the teaching is in Scripture like this. And if you want to study it deeper, it is worth your study to study deeper. When we read in Romans 13th chapter, let's begin reading in verse 1. Let every soul be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. And the authorities that exist are appointed by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authority resists the ordinance of God. That's strong, isn't it? You resist the authority, you resist the ordinance of God. And those who resist will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers are not a terror to good works, but to evil. Do you want to be unafraid of the authority? Do what is good. And you will have praise from the same. For he, talking about the government authorities. He's going to call them God's ministers three times. Here's the first one. For he is God's minister to you for good. But if you do evil, be afraid. For he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is God's minister, an avenger to execute wrath on him who practices evil. Therefore, you must be subject, not only because of wrath, but also for conscience sake. For because of this, you also pay taxes, for they are God's ministers attending continually to this very thing. Render therefore to all their due, taxes to whom taxes are due, custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, and honor to whom honor. So when we go back to verse one, we see the first bullet and that is submit to governing authorities. In other words, that word submit there is like a military term is that you obey the one that has the rank over you. And then in verse one, he says, for there is. In other words, he talks about submit and then you say, well, why am I to submit? For there is no authority except from God. We submit because God's the one that designed authority. The governing authorities. Do you realize nobody in the human race ever at any point in time sat down and said, I've got a brilliant idea. I'm the first one to think of this. We need leaders. Let, let's appoint someone in a family to lead the family. Let's appoint somebody in the church to lead the church. Let's appoint someone in our civilization to lead. God designed the home, and from day one, he said, the husband is to be head of the home. God designed the church, and from day one, the apostles had the authority, and they soon established, by the work of the Holy Spirit, through God's measure, they established the eldership. And the eldership is to lead. Civilizations have always, have always sought internal leadership whether it's Indians seeking a, a, a tribal chief or if it's a country seeking a king or a president, if it's a town seeking a mayor or a state seeking a governor, 
God is the one who ordained the leadership of civilizations and of government. And then he makes this very strong statement. You resist authority and you resist God and you will be judged for it. Listen, God's children are to be peaceful citizens. God's children are to be obedient to the government in which we live. Now we know from like examples in Acts the fourth chapter, John and Peter, they were commanded to not teach in the name of Jesus. Well, that command from earthly authority violated the heavenly and eternal authority. And so you remember their answer? Their answer is, we can't do that. We're going to obey God instead of man. You know, years ago, when Russia was in communist rule, and there were Christian churches underground, I want to read you this quote of what one of the members of that underground church said. If any Christian is ever to suffer imprisonment or punishment, they were describing themselves as an underground church, and they suffered a lot of persecution. He says, it will never be for anything other than the sake of Jesus Christ. In all other matters, we obey the government. That is a noble quote. To be able to say we're living in a time where the government is persecuting us for being a Christian. And if they want to persecute us for being a Christian, we'll go to jail. In essence, we'll let our life be taken for being a Christian. But if that government asks us to pay taxes, if they ask us to obey civil laws, if it does not violate our relationship with God, we will obey. That's the very same thing we see of Christians in the first century. They were willing to obey the authorities over them unless the specific act of obedience would violate a specific law of God. The next thing that we see from the text that we read was that rulers should bring fear to the evil. <clears throat> I see a few police officers. When you're doing 60 and a 45 and you look up and, and you see an officer in your rear view, do you have just a little bit of fear? Now at that moment, at that moment, why do you have a little bit of fear? Because you're violating the law. You know what you're experiencing? Exactly what God designed. God designed government and citizenship to work so that whenever we do wrong, we should fear the authority. Now, you also know that God designed us, as we've already been talking about, we should be the obedient ones to the law. And so in essence is what he is saying, and, and notice that next line there on the bullet is the, the governmental rulers. And by the way, I use the word ruler there because it uses it interchangeably, and I just wanted to bring emphasis to that. And, and so this idea of rulers, in other words, they have authority. They are God's ministers. It's used three times. One time it's talking about their ministers to bring good to the lives of good people. The second time it's used is to bring the uh, vengeance or to avenge, to, to bring punishment to those who are evil. And the third time it's used in this text is to say that they are a minister 
to collect taxes. And so it's, it's interesting how, how those three usage cover the people that are seeking to be law-abiding. God's given us ministers. For those who want to be lawbreakers, God has a minister to handle that. And then for collecting taxes, God has established ministry for that also. Now, the, the next to the last one that we'll look at is therein, the latter part of that passage where he says, submit for conscience sake. Before that, he mentions not only for wrath, because he's just covered the fact that those that break the law will be punished. And so now he's speaking to his children. And what he's saying is, so you are not to be those. And so you literally would say, I want to do right. Number one, it's, it's what God wants me to do. Number two, I want to do right because I don't want the punishment that comes when you do wrong. But then he takes that a step further. And he says, you also ought to want to do right for your conscience sake. Sometimes we, and, and I don't know, with, we've got so much, hopefully good stuff planned in our studies and, and sermons and Bible classes. The staff has been meeting and, and even the elders and trying to plan out next year. And I, I don't know where we can work it in, but somewhere we need to work in a two or three week study on conscience. It is a serious matter to willfully violate our conscience. And it's interesting here where he's urging us to be obedient to government. He points this out and says, I want you to obey because number one, if you resist them, you resist me. Number two, I want you to obey because if you disobey, you're going to seek what I've created. The government is to avenge. They're to punish you. But number three, he says, I want you to obey because now that you know I've asked you to obey, and if you don't, you're going to violate your own conscience. What happens when we start going through life and we violate our conscience? The first time we feel really guilty and we feel bad. But if we do not correct ourselves, the next time we don't feel quite as guilty and quite as bad. And the next time we don't feel much guilt at all. And then before long, we don't even care. Listen, if we harden our heart about what we know is right, but yet we don't do it, it's going to start affecting other areas of our life. Obviously, I don't know what your thought is about the laws of our land. I don't know how many here just take some and just write them off. Well, I'm, that's a dumb law. I'm not doing it. Well, I quit obeying that law years ago and I don't care. I hope this passage tonight is a wake-up call to any of us that need to be awakened. That we can live life God's way and allow Him to direct our life. Or we can be stubborn and bullheaded and we can just plow right through. And we can call ourselves a Christian but yet shape our own life when what we ought to do is submit to the Lord and say, Lord, you lead. And the Lord would say, don't go through life violating your conscience. And then the final thing, doesn't everybody like to hear a sermon on taxes? Remember when Jesus said, show me the coin. 
Mark 12. Whose image is on it? Render to Caesar what is Caesar's. And render to God what is God's. Just reinforcing that God's plan, even when God was in flesh on this earth, God's plan is for us to honor those in authority. Remember 1 Timothy 2? We're to pray for them. He even says, pray with thanksgiving for kings and all men in authority. And then it says that we may have a peaceful life. That ought to be our prayer. Our prayer of thanksgiving for God's design. Our prayer that there are people there willing to lead and that they would lead in a way that would lead to peace in our lives. Will that involve paying taxes? It will. Will most of us feel like we pay more than what we should? I guess so. But the question then becomes, will you honor God and do what he's asked? What if right now God could just put a red light over everybody that's been dishonest in their taxes? That's not just a financial decision. That's an issue of your relationship with God. That's what this passage is about. God's people are to be upright in all ways. Now, are we saying we become perfect? Well, not on this side of eternity, but that ought to be our goal. Our goal ought to be anything that the Lord asks, His will be done in my life. Man can have a lot of plans in his heart. They won't stand. The counsel of God, it will stand. Today, I hope you and I hear this and realize that it's challenging, but we really believe that God's teachings are a marvel. God's teaching has a way to set our life apart in a powerful way. How could God use all of us if we all went to the workplace and we displayed our faith? I love to sing the song, How Great Is Our God. Would you contemplate the thought of God's greatness is just as great when he asks us to go and live for him in the workplace? Our God's greatness is just as great and is on display when he asks us to interact with our government in a way that he has asked. You see, it's wrong to pick out the parts about God you like and say, oh, our God's so great. And then when it's something we don't, well, God just doesn't know what he's talking about. You see where I'm trying to go as we close this? Does God know what he's talking about or does he not? Is God all knowing or is he foolish sometimes? And I say that just to make a point, not to be blasphemous. But do you realize if you're sitting there saying, it really doesn't matter what God said about taxes. It really doesn't matter what God said about the workplace. You're saying God doesn't know best. I'd like to believe that every one of us here believe our God is great. He's great in wisdom. He's great in understanding. And what he asks of us is best for his cause 
and for those that are part of his cause. And tonight, let's leave here willing to follow the marvelous plans that God has made for his people. And if we can help you do that, come as we stand.